You are listening to Breaking Away, a candid podcast by Chris, developed for the sex-positive community, exploring adult-themed societal norms and how some are breaking away from them. Please know this podcast will contain adult themes and adult language. If you're okay with this, stay tuned for this week's episode. For uh, joining me today on uh, Breaking Away. Uh, really excited to have you on uh, the show um, or on the podcast. Um, so why don't you tell me, you're working on your PhD right now. Uh, why don't you tell me a little bit more about that? Yeah, so I'm doing a PhD here at the University of Victoria in a program called Social Dimensions of Health. I'm studying um, the experience of people seeking reproductive health care who faced obstacles related to conscientious objection. So conscientious objection in healthcare is basically when um, healthcare providers like physicians or nurses refuse to provide certain services, which are usually related to abortion, contraception, medical aid in dying, and transgender care. Uh, for religious reasons, well, they call them conscience, but it's often for religious reasons. Mm-hmm. And so I, my project will involve interviewing people who have sort of faced these objections. Wow. I, I didn't even realize that was a, an issue within Canada. It, it, does this happen frequently? We don't know. Oh. <laughs> There's okay. <laughs> there's no data about it in Canada. I mean, there's plenty of data about it in the U.S. When, um, but it's a lot of the more like publicized cases. But it's a it's a known problem in the U.S. and in Catholic countries where you know women are denied life saving abortions because the fetus still has a heartbeat. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in Canada, just recently, so in 2015, when the college when Uh, medical aid in dying became legal, the College of Physicians and Surgeons of Ontario rewrote their human rights, uh, they rewrote their human rights policy to uh, require physicians to provide a, what they call an effective referral when they have when they have a conscience-based objection to whatever the patient is asking. Right. So a bunch of Christian physicians decided to sue the college because they said that this policy breached their rights to religious freedom because in their eyes, referring is the same as performing the act. So... Yeah, so it took three years. In 2018, the first judgment came in, which was in favor of the College of Physicians and Surgeons of Ontario. The judge basically said that, yes, it is a breach of religious freedom. However, it is justified in order to maintain uh, equity of access to healthcare services. They appealed, and the appeal judgment just came in last week or two weeks ago, which uh, reinforced the first judgment. Now it's just to know whether or not it's going to go into the Supreme Court. 
And I'm hoping that if it goes to the Supreme Court, by the time it's heard, I'm going to have data to uh, present to the court about uh, the harms of such refusals and how patients actually sort of feel when they're being told that what they want is wrong. So that's basically my project. Oh, that is uh, that is intense. And that's definitely getting a whole bunch of feels for me. <laughs> well, so yeah, we don't have data about it in Canada and across the country, those policies around referral and conscientious objection are really unequal. So Ontario has the strongest one. And even then, it's not even punitive. So if there's no consequences, if a physician does not provide a referral. So and some actually surprised uh, to hear you say Ontario has the highest rate. Um, just I my assumption would have been uh, Quebec, actually. No, Quebec, actually. Okay, so if you look at there was a study published in 2016 uh, that a bunch of physicians decided to try to survey all of the abortion clinics in the country. Mm-hmm. They In 2012, there were 96 abortion clinics that were not hospitals or like private GPs doing it in their clinic. Like they were specifically uh, abortion clinics. There were 96 of them and like 49% of them were in Quebec. It's not hard to get an abortion in Quebec. It's actually where it's the easiest in the country. Oh, well, that's good to know. <laughs> <laughs> I know, right? Well, just uh, because they're they're such um, they're they're so synonymous with being uh, a Catholic province uh, that that really does surprise me. Are you from Quebec originally, or uh, family? <laughs> yeah. Okay. So I I am, and you say that, but people my generation and even my mother's. Um, we kicked the, the Catholics out of everything in the 70s, right? Yes. The Quiet Revolution. Yeah. And so in high school, which I did in the late 90s, like 95 to 2000, um, we had fairly liberal sex education. I mean, we reviewed the <laughs> Masters and Johnson uh, orgasm model in high school, which is unthinkable in BC. Like I tell that to my BC friends and they're like, really? You learned that in high school? And I'm like, yep, that was part of my sex ed. Uh, Abortion is not stigmatized in Quebec because in the seventies, even before, um, before Morgan Taylor, Quebec made like really specific policies about having abortion clinics in every, like in every city and region. Mm-hmm. So it's been widely available for decades, thanks to feminist politicians in the 70s who did a lot of work towards that. Doesn't mean it wasn't difficult to get because you still had the panels and stuff. But once Morgan Taylor came into effect, well, you know, after abortion was decriminalized uh, in 88, it became just like you just go and get an abortion. Mm. So Quebec is actually where they're is the most abortion service. Wow, I, I I mean that's 
that's great to hear that uh, Quebec is the most progressive when it comes to that. And um, I know uh, last summer there was a lot of information about uh, the sex education changes uh, that were happening in Ontario. And I, I do recall hearing that Quebec was quite a bit more progressive, um, a lot more, you know, actually real science-based sex education mm-hmm. versus uh, abstinence only, um, which I, I think is... Uh, the only way to, um, you know, move forward. Yes. Uh, I mean, I'm not privy to educational policies Mm -hmm. in Quebec because I haven't lived there for 11 years, but my childhood and teenage years tell me that compared to people my age elsewhere in Canada, like we have, like it was you know, LGBTQ issues and stuff, they were sort of talked about, but there were still there was still a lot of stigma. Mm-hmm. But we still talked about sex as a, as a thing that happens and that, you know, if you're going to have it, put on a condom and, like, here are contraception methods and here are STIs and blah, blah, blah. Uh, I mean, in grade six, seven, eight, nine, in grade nine biology... Uh, we learned how to put on a condom. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, yeah, it, it's it's a very different world, and and people who have this idea of Quebec as this like super conservative Catholic have like Catholic area have not spent any time in Quebec in the last twenty years, because really religion does not dictate public policy. Well, you know, except when you start talking about, like, reasonable accommodations and everything, which basically brought into light all of the, you know, religious bigotry that still exists. But at least when it comes to sex, it's minimal. <laughs> well, I mean, that's that's definitely an A-plus in, uh, in my books, um, which uh, leads me to uh, kind of my, my main question for this podcast. Uh, when you hear the term uh, sex positive, what does that mean to you? I think sex positive to me means that understanding that Sex is a natural thing that humans do and that anything related to shaming or trying to moralize it or to put it in a like religious framework. So I've been thinking a lot about how um, we have sort of moral judgments around sex. And right now, the morality of sex is based on acts, right? So certain acts, certain sex acts are acceptable and certain sex acts are not, uh, you know, depending on your point of view. So I think that sex positivity, like to me, is changing that from the morality of sex should be based on the relationship between the people who have it rather than the acts that they perform. So sex become becomes immoral when there's no consent, coercion. Uh, so sex is unacceptable when it's forced, unwanted, you know, all of the negative, but they're relationship-based rather than saying, well, anal sex is wrong, but penis and and vagina sex is right. So it's kind of shifting the conversation from 
what acts are acceptable to what sort of relationships are and are not. Absolutely. And that's, uh, that's a very um, in- exciting and interesting concept. Um, you know, my, myself, my background is in non-monogamy, open relationships, and kind of getting the conversation going on that. And I, I read a few of your posts. Um, you've definitely got some pages that relate to kink, polyamory. Um, you've, you've had a few ongoing relationships uh, when it comes to talking about different relationship norms and kind of expanding that beyond uh, the, the physical acts. Uh, do you want to touch a little bit on kind of what your perception is on that? Uh, on polyamory yeah uh all right so here's a funny story (laughs) when (laughs) when I left my ex with whom I was monogamous um no honey you can't go outside my cat is sort of looking at the door but it's now it's noisy outside so I can't (laughs) let her out um all right so when uh I left my ex and started dating my current partner who's married um I told my mother I'm like oh so you know I'm dating this guy and she's like but how can you be with someone who can't be with you and I'm like well he is with me just because he won't be able to live with me or marry me doesn't mean that he can't be with me. He's with me all the time. Uh, I mean, I can call him at 3 a.m. and so that he takes me to the hospital. And that's happened more than once. Uh, so I just leave the topic. I sort of don't talk about it with my mother much. However, uh, about a year and a half ago, I had an emergency. And I was in class and I had a panic attack, but I had no idea that I had a panic attack. I thought I was having a heart attack. So my professor t- calls the ambulance. I end up in the hospital and I w- just had enough time to Facebook, like I'm in the hospital, but I need to sort of turn off. And who's the first person that she messaged on Facebook? My partner. Oh. So she protests but she understands how important he is to me and that he cares for me and that she can count on him if i'm not there to give her news Mm -hmm. so (laughs) um i mean right now i just have one partner and i don't really have the time or the energy to have more but getting in the time and the energy is something that will resonate with the most uh people (laughs) It's a huge time commitment. There is so much energy and you really have to be in a very open-minded and good uh, frame of mind to be able to see multiple people. At least that's been my experience. Yeah, my partner has three. So he has me, his wife, and another person. (laughs) And it's like he's trying to make quality time for everyone and... Honey, make up your mind. Okay. Now she's literally trying to, like, walk all over my computer. Okay. There we go. So uh, he has three partners, and it's challenging for him to make sure that everyone feels, you know, that they're being taken care of, that they're being listened to, that they have quality time with him. Mm -hmm. So... 
Yeah, I don't, I can't imagine how he does it because I'm like, oh my god, having one partner is tiring enough. Um, <laughs> well, I mean, especially while pursuing, you know, your your PhD, that's, uh, that's definitely a time commitment for sure. Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm not, I'm not under any sort of illusion that I, I realize that, you know, the whole getting married and having babies and a house in the suburbs and basically what my brother is doing is not for me. And like my work will always come first and he knows this and, you know, he's aware that once I'm done with my PhD, I might just like might have to move basically anywhere. And um, so for me, I think it, it, it hasn't changed how I, well, I mean, it has changed how I approach relationships, I guess. I realize that I am not jealous, like, at all. He's, he tells me about his partners, and he tells me, like, the only thing I'm jealous of is when he falls in love with a new person. It's mm-hmm. like the whole NRE thing, and I know how amazing it feels to fall in love, and, like, it's always sort of an amazing, magical moment. And that I miss, but I'm not jealous that he sees other people or that, you know, he has a wife or whatever. And sometimes he says, you know, I haven't spent much time with my wife this week. So like, just just go home early. Go take care of your wife. I'm not, like, I'm not angry if you want to make sure that your other partners are happy. So I am not jealous. I am, like, I'll just you know, take what he gives me and that's enough for me. And I started questioning like the whole sort of, you know, narrative around how people are supposed to want like monogamous relationships and and nuclear families and children and this whole model of how our life is supposed to go. And I'm like, you know what? That's all bullshit. And I am not interested in keeping house. I'm not interested in cleaning up after another man. Or, you know, I don't know. I've never been in a long-term relationship with a woman. I hear it's much more egalitarian as far as chores go. All the the data, all the studies support that queer kind of non-heterosexual relationships are much more equal in terms of domestic work. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I just want to do my work and hopefully one day become a professor and the rest is, you know, bonus. Uh, he gives me, you know, the affection and the sex and sort of sort of like the intimacy that every person needs. Yeah. But I don't need that to be within the confines of the typical heterosexual relationship, basically. Absolutely. And and I definitely think that uh, falls back to, you know, how we're raised in the nuclear family and, you know, the this big dream that we're all supposed to want for our lives. And, you know, the older I get and the more people I talk to, um, the less that dream um, is uh, a ubiquitous uh, ubiquitous goal 
Um, you know, at different stages in life, people want different things. They have different levels of uh, time availability. Um, all those things come into play. Yeah, that's that's true. And we have to be careful not to demonize the people who do get into, you know, your typical married monogamous relationship, if that's what makes them happy. Um, but I think it's important to question sort of like the inherentness of it all like that's the only choice yes I agree I, I mean it doesn't have to be an inevitability it, uh, to me I think it would be much more fulfilling if it's something that you actually want that you go in knowing you know there's other relationship norms and you choose what makes more most sense for you yeah and the thing with polyamory is that when you begin a relationship, you talk about the things that you want, the things that, the things that you expect, the things that you can give, the things that you can't. And I don't remember having that conversation with my ex when we started dating. We just sort of started dating and then we had sex and then we moved in together and then we talked about having children and then things happened and other stuff happened and it was sort of all a big terrible mess. But I don't remember having that conversation with him, like, ever. No. And we go in these relationships with all of these assumptions about what men are supposed to do, what women are supposed to do. And we don't talk about them. And I think that's the most harmful thing about it. If you oh, want... With you. If, yeah. yeah. If you want a monogamous relationship where certain roles are attributed to certain people, well, go in talking about it because if you realize five years down the road that they don't match then you're in trouble exactly exactly you know have that conversation which shouldn't even be a tough conversation it should just be something that uh, you talk about what are your long-term wants needs how are you raised what are your values you know those tough conversations not just the assumption that you're going to get married have 2.5 kids <laughs> you know the wife's going to stay home with the kids the male's going to be the breadwinner you know all these different social norms that we just you know we don't talk about yeah and the whole the wife stays at home is it doesn't happen anymore i mean only only the wealthy can afford that uh, oh, absolutely. It's something that we, we've challenged, but I don't believe that we challenged it um, because we thought it was a conversation that needed to happen. I think it kind of, we challenged it because we wanted equality and then we're going, oh, wait, now we have to talk about how this actually impacts family life. And so we kind of backtracked a little. And I think that's a really interesting thing, like for me, especially watching, you know, my friends try to navigate that world. There's a lot more conversation going on and it's it's a very exciting time. Well, for me being on the sidelines. <laughs> oh, absolutely. I mean, just I'm surrounded by non-monogamous people. That's what happens when you get into kink, right? Like there's... It, it's quite prevalent and it's weird sort of walking back into normal world and whenever I talk about my partner I know like he spends whatever Saturday night with his wife and Sunday nights with me and people look at me like I wait <laughs> sometimes I'm like I wait to see their eyes sort of like narrow and like his wife and I'm like oh well, you know, everybody's aware of everyone. And I actually was friends with her 
before I met him and I met him through her and you know every, every everything's kosher like everything is everyone's aware and everyone agrees but for a while there it's just sort of huh so are you like sleeping with a married man like yes but it's not cheating <laughs> I mean it's going on four years as a relationship so it's basically half of my previous relationship already and, and I could making meaningful connections and I, I think that's what a lot of people don't understand they either think it's they compartmentalize that it's just sex or it's just something filling a void I get that a lot but as you mentioned earlier you're getting the intimacy you're getting the of course the sexual needs and you're also you know with somebody who will make time for you and be there in in emergency situations yep I've got everything that you could ever want from a partner except he doesn't live with me and he has another wife and you know we're not gonna get a mortgage together but I don't want to get a mortgage with someone not that I can afford a mortgage anyway uh, <laughs> but yeah, education is not free in Canada that is for sure <laughs> uh well even even then anyway that's a whole a, a whole other <laughs> ball of string um but yeah so it just suits the kind of life that I want which is mostly independent with access to sex and intimacy and a person that I love, but without all the constrictions of like a heterosexual monogamous marriage or domestic partnership. So it works for me. It's perfect. And I don't see what's wrong with that. No, absolutely. And I, I think um, phrasing it that way, you don't see what's wrong with it. I, I, I find that that kind of goes back to uh, kind of the ethics and morality. It's just a relationship. It's not a sex act. It, it's not right or wrong. It's just a different way of looking at relationships and getting your needs met and finding love and, you know, a bond with another human being. And it shouldn't be relegated to good or bad or, you know, any of those, like, black and white terms. Oh, absolutely. I mean, if you if you take a look at the sort of anthropological literature around relationships and family structures, human beings have done relationships in millions of different ways, Oh, and <laughs> having this idea, you know, it goes back to, like, we, we want to talk about white supremacy now? <laughs> Let's talk about white supremacy. Uh, so this idea that uh, a sort of like the Christian Western marriage is the best model for managing relationships and family is just another fallacy of living in a time where it's dominant but it wasn't always like this, and it's not like this around the world. There are plenty of cultures around the world who don't have the sort of monogamous nuclear families that we have here, and they'd look at them and they'd be like, that's weird. I don't remember exactly which culture it is, but... Um... So here's an example from... Uh... 
uh, Star Trek Enterprise, where the doctor is uh, Dr. Flox. He's from another planet. He's an alien. And in his pl- on his planet, everybody's married to three people. So he has three wives. Each of his wives has three husbands. That's how his culture works. Mm-hmm. And one of his wives ends up on the ship and is attracted to, I, I think, the commander... I the blonde so. guy. I don't remember his name. Yeah, I think he's. I think he's the second in command. I think he's the, he's the EXO, and so you know what episode I'm talking about. I do. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so, very excited to actually talk about uh, uh, Star Trek right now. So. Oh my <laughs> god. <laughs> Wasn't the second season of Discovery just the best Trek you've ever seen? <laughs> it was just the best. Anyway, so to go back to Enterprise, so. Yep. This this one of his wives shows up on the ship, and she's attracted to Tucker. I think is his name. Yeah. And Tucker is like super uncomfortable, and he's like, and he goes to he goes to Doctor Flux, and he's like, so your wife has been hitting on me, and he says, good for you, you're gonna have a good time. Yeah. And he's like, but isn't she your wife? Like, aren't you in love? And it's like, what does love have? Like. Love has nothing to do with it. Sex and like marriage are two absolutely different things. We don't get married for like anyway. And I thought this was brilliant because there are cultures in um on this planet who think that love and marriage are completely different. Mm-hmm. Um uh Getting married for love is it's seen a as a relatively new concept. It, it it's is really relatively new. Yes. So there's this book called The History of Marriage. Um, my bookcase is a little far, but let me check my Goodreads. Uh, it's called The History of Marriage, and it's from like a family historian. Okay. And she talks about how is that no that's not the one marriage of history yeah okay all right so it's the book by stephanie Kuntz, and so she kind of looks at marriage from you know ancient times but she spends a lot of time uh, starting in the seventeenth, in the seventeenth, eighteenth, nineteenth centuries, talking about how so marriage used to be sort of like a union of families, so families joining to pull resources, to like join land, to develop uh, alliances between yeah, safety, uh, you know, yeah. In she talks about how in medieval England, marriages weren't just a matter of two people being in love and getting married and having kids, right? The entire village would be involved in deciding who would marry who. Mm-hmm. And these things went through like trial marriages and they tried living together for a couple of months. And then if it worked, they would stay together. And marriage had nothing to do with love. 
No, it was more of an alliance. It was more of a, a bringing together of, you know, as you mentioned, resources. Yep. And you, you, so have you ever read um, the Divine Comedy by Dante? I have not. Okay, so it's about Dante walking through. The first one is uh, Inferno, which is basically Dante walking through the seven circles of hell. And one of the first ones is um, for people who are led around by their passions. And the people that he meets, they're sort of like famous historical figures of his time who uh, were caught having sex. They were both married to someone else and they were caught having sex and they were executed or something. Anyway, they went to hell. Um, because, and the idea of that they're stuck on a boat that is being buffeted by winds, by storm winds. They have no control over what's happening to them. And so the metaphor really that's there is that this passionate love, this, I put love in quotation marks, but it's really lust, yeah. is, is just passions buffeting people left and right. Um and making decisions <laughs> based on lust yeah. is idiotic. <laughs> yeah, we're not thinking straight, are we, at that moment? <laughs> no. Uh, just the neurobiology of, of lust, like of the first sort of six months of a relationship, your brain is basically giving you all of the... It's giving you a bunch of... of neurochemicals that that are pushing you to procreate so this obsession uh so ep norepinephrine is making is giving you like obsessive thoughts um dopamine is giving you like making you feel good every time you think about that person like if you think about that person because of norepinephrine you get like a dopamine boost because thinking about that person is pleasurable and and it's been studied and it's been shown that it's it's really every person who's in this kind of NRE situation has the same levels of these neurochemicals. And then when that sort of period goes down, disappears, the neurochemicals kind of go into another mode. So you've got basically make babies mode and you've got bond and care for children mode. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to essentialize love and relationships to neurochemicals because it's a lot more complicated than that. But in the case of, you know, when you meet someone and those floaty, nice feelings that you have, <laughs> it's not because that person is special or the love of your life or whatever. It's just your brain. Yeah. <laughs> they could be the love of your life, but you won't know until a good year and a half. Yeah, until things settle out, until all your hormones kind of get back to normal. <laughs> yeah. And so people have known for a long time that making decisions while you are in that period is recipe for disaster. Yeah, it's foolhardy at best, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah, so... Um, but uh, so much of our mythology around love and romance, they're based on that period and and... 
you know, romantic comedies provide the promise that these amazing feelings that you have will last forever if only you get married. Yeah. <sighs> so more research looking at long-term relationships looks at what sort of looked at what sustains relationships in the long term. So I wish I could provide the graph. It's it's sort of difficult to explain in words, but basically there were sort of three periods where different things were important to maintain the relationship. So in the first year and a half to two years, it's passion. Mm -hmm. Like if you don't feel attracted to each other, the relationship won't last. Right. The second period is like the two to five years where it's values that maintain the relationship. So passion is gone, but similar values will keep people together. Yeah. Past the five... Yeah, so past the five-year mark, it's not values that are important anymore, it's roles. So at five years, people have sort of settled into what's expected of them and what they expect of other people. So if those sort of roles, so what the wife is supposed to do, what the husband is supposed to do, or like for same-sex relationships or queer relationships, like what one partner is supposed to do, what the other partner is supposed to do... If these, if they agree on the roles, then the relationship will last, basically has a much, much better chance to last in the very long term. So I can think of like relationships where it hits the six month mark where Anari is sort of declining, then you're like, eh, I don't really want that for like, sex is still fun, but Passion is declining. So if you can maintain that passion until, like, biologically, until children are born, which takes, like, about two years. Yeah. Um, then, and then you realize that you don't have the same values at all. And so that's when... <clears throat> so basically, if people start a relationship and passion dies quickly, the relationship breaks. If passion lasts but they get to the values phase where they realize that they don't have the same values at all because nobody talks about values when they're just boinking. <laughs> like, nobody's nope. like, so I voted for Trump. <laughs> and I, I mean, these days it's a, like a, I think I would ask before I would fuck anyone <laughs> um, if they were, if Trump was a Canadian, would they vote for him or like, would they vote for Sheer or whatever? Anyway. So nobody really talks about values when they just want to have sex. Right. But once, once you're raising children, values become very important. So what are your values? How are we going to raise our children? What sort, of, uh, what sort of beliefs and values will we impart on them? If you disagree, you're not going to be very successful at raising your children because mom says one thing and, well, one parent says one thing yeah. and the other parent says another thing. Yeah. And then... You know, once the children are old enough and they leave the house and then they sort of get established in their roles, if, you know, one partner thinks that the other partner should be doing all the laundry and the other person hates doing the laundry, you don't have a lot of long-term possibilities. So there are sort of these three elements that over time, like, fluctuate in importance. Like, at the end of a relationship, passion is meaningless. 
Um, right, passion and lust don't last. They're no. they're not a bond that are are long term. Our brains just can't, you know, create that much uh, <laughs> that much uh, new new relationship energy juice, for lack of a better word. Yeah, with the um, same person, it just doesn't work. No, I mean there's there's ways to sort of stimulate it for maybe a day or two and it makes you feel good. And I had that experience last year with my partner Mm -hmm. where we did something quite amazing and, and, you know, intimate and we connected very deeply. And I had that sort of like NRE for like a day or two after, but it's not going to be like that sort of like obsessive six weeks of, Oh my God, the only thing you can think about is having sex with that person. (laughs) So a lot of people think that that passion will last and when that passion dies, they're sort of like, well, where is it? I was promised passion by the marriage industry, by romantic comedies, by uh, romance novels. And I'm sorry, but that's not how it works. No, no, absolutely not. You've and been you know, and that's to. something going back to, you know, polyamorous relationships, uh, they, they don't last that long there either. It's not like for in my experience that I'm not just continually uh, chasing the passion. I mean, it's wonderful, but, I, you know, there's definitely more value to me in longer term, more established. I mean, I love the butterflies. They're incredible. However... <laughs> You know, I, I'm more a fan of like the long-term bonds, that meaningful connection, the the intimacy beyond just the uh, initial excitement. Oh, absolutely. I think there's value in long-term bonding that people often sort of forget about. <laughs> but the beauty of polyamory is that you can actually chase the high while you're like more long-term bonding with someone else. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> um, which which brings me back to my idea of like, like, I'm a little bit jealous of my partner who falls in love so easily. Like, it's just a wonder to see where he just walks around and he falls in love so easily. <laughs> and I'm like, wow, I'm sort of jealous of your ability and often he enters these relationships with women who he's not entering them like here's the thing so my partner is not particularly handsome man he's not rich he doesn't have a fancy car he's like but what he has is respect and he listens so how did I fall in love with him he came over, so my ex used to leave basically every weekend for, in quotation marks, work, okay. which I think was something else, but he'll never admit. He never admitted to it, and I don't think he ever will. Um, anyway, so he would come and bring me a bottle of wine and drink it with me and listen to me talk for hours and hours. And he would just be there and he would just listen to me. And after a couple of months of this, I'm like, I'm starting to have thoughts about this man that I'm not supposed to have. (laughs) And I mean, my relationship was breaking down anyway, but, um, and that was your initial foray into, uh, um, a, a different relationship norm, like right from monogamy. 
Yeah. Okay. So when I realized that my ex wouldn't have sex with me anymore and that, well, he, we hadn't had sex for like three years and he wouldn't work on the problem. He refused to go see a therapist. And so I'm like, okay, after I met, uh, after I met my partner, I was like, so I'm offering you options. We can break up, move out and just go on our separate ways, or we can remain sort of like long-term roommates who sleep in the same bed and I can have sex with someone else. And he took the second option. Oh, okay. Uh, no, I mean, he took the first option. Oh, so, okay. <laughs> yeah, sorry. Um, That's okay. I was so a little shocked there. <laughs> yeah, that was weird. Uh, so he took the first option. He says, well, no, I can't do that. So I'm like, okay, then you won't satisfy my needs and it's it's a like it's a top three need for me and I'm just not willing to to settle so our relationship is ended after nine years and it was just it was that simple um and then I started a relationship with my other partner I didn't like have sex with my current partner before I broke up so I maintain sort of my integrity that way mm-hmm. um and honestly it's worked for me brilliantly ever since it's just sort of I don't need a husband I don't need a full-time man in my life it's it's more of a to me, the thought of having a husband is more like, oh, my God, why? <laughs> <laughs> I can't even. I'm like, no. <laughs> oh. I mean, my cat is cleaner than most men I've dated. So, <laughs> Well, I, I mean, I, that's absolutely fascinating to me. Um, so, yeah. Um, are do you have kind of any final thoughts that you want to get out um definitely want to link to your um blog that you're writing because there's a bunch of good stuff on there um i know a bunch of my readers and my listeners have asked for definitions of certain things and you have one that was very well done on um heteronormative and you very eloquently spoke to a bunch of definitions that uh people have been querying about but uh, if you want to just kind of mention your blog's uh, website yeah okay so my blog is called the story of a which is a not very uh, subtle uh, not very subtle nod to the story of O um, although it's 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 moved from being a kink to more of a sort of everything blog uh but that's uh, focused a lot on my interests currently which are around reproductive justice mm-hmm. um so it's at www whoever says that anymore it's at the story <laughs> <laughs> the story of a.com and i am on twitter i am a underscore the underscore story underscore of underscore a uh, just go on my website and find me there. It's, it's, um, yeah, it's a bit of a mess because other nicknames, other Twitter handles were, were taken. 
Um, I'm not like it's sporadic. It really depends on like the time period and whatever I'm involved in academically. I've been writing a little bit more lately, but yeah. So that's my website, and I have a Patreon. If you feel like giving me like buying me a coffee every month or something, that'd be great. Um, not absolutely necessary, but would be awesome. And I'm quite active on Twitter. So, you know, if you want to chat with me, chat me up on Twitter and uh, or send me like a question on my website. And yeah. Awesome. Well, I will uh, provide uh, links to your Twitter and your blog and uh, your Patreon if you if anybody wants to reach out. But thank you so much for uh, chatting with me today. I really appreciate it. (laughs) Thank you for for having me. I, we often forget that people who are looking at these sort of relationships or topics who live in environments where they're not sort of allowed to explore them publicly, sharing our experiences can be very liberating for a lot of people who don't have models around them to discuss them. So, Oh, I, I agree. I absolutely agree. If I had only known 10 years ago. <laughs> oh my God, I know, right? <laughs> Oh, it's the story of my life. Had I only known. <laughs> I only known that being single is absolutely acceptable. <laughs> yep, absolutely. All right. Well, thanks again for chatting. And uh, I wish you a wonderful day. Thank you. You too. Okay. Cheers. All right. You have been listening to Breaking Away, a podcast for the sex-positive community. To learn more about Annie, please check out her blog at thestoryofa.com and follow her on Twitter with links to be found at the bottom of this episode. A huge thanks this week to Robert at Darth Mode for for his generous support on Patreon. Please like, share, and subscribe wherever your favorite podcasts are hosted. And stay tuned for next week's exciting episode with Breaking Away.